0: Right. Well, today we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, we are in chapter 12. And as we continue through this journey, uh, we're looking at uh, how Jesus' authority was being either challenged or questioned in chapter 12. And there's three areas that it gets challenged in. One was in the area of of the Sabbath and Jesus' approach to the Sabbath. The other is the area of exorcism, Jesus' authority over evil spirits, and then finally today we're looking at uh, the place of signs. People ask for signs from Jesus as a demonstration of his authority. And over the years, you know, this place of wanting a sign is, is something that I've seen quite often within the church, even up to today, for different reasons. Like one of the most common things, which throughout Christian history, uh, people ask the question, for example, of how do you know if a person is a Christian? What is the sign that is expressed that a person is a Christian? And this question has has been one that, like I say, has come back and forth throughout Christian history. In fact, just about 100 years ago, uh, in uh, this place called Azusa Street in uh, Los Angeles, one of the ways that this question was answered has been with us for about, like I say, about 100 years, and that is the Pentecostal movement, which said the sign of a person being a Christian is that they speak in tongues. And that's probably the latest one that's really gotten traction over the years. The only problem with that is it's not a biblical expectation that everyone would express the same gifts, including speaking in tongues. And also that speaking in tongues or ecstatic utterances, as it's also known as, is not unique to Christianity. And you have several different, if you want to call them pagan religions throughout the world, that also people go into the state of ecstatic uttering, which is why in the Bible it says there has to be an interpretation. Because just speaking out ecstatically is not unique to Christianity, then or today. The Baptist churches, and and our our sign says that we're Baptists out there, Uh, the reason why we're called a Baptist church is because baptism is one of the few outward signs that a person can participate in to confess their faith in Jesus Christ. If you notice when we do communion, I often use the phrase anyone who is a confessed Christian is 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 uh, welcome to participate. I'm totally using kind of Christianese when I say that because what it means by that is someone who is a confessed Christian is someone who has outwardly, you know, said that they are a believer. And for Baptist churches, the the way a person does that is through believers' baptism. And this comes out of the 1600s when Baptists were founded. Baptists were founded just a little trip down uh, history lane here. You don't have to agree with where the Baptist mindset was, but in the 1600s, the Baptists were a response against what they saw as abuses in the Church of England. And one of the things that they didn't like was that you had this thing called the territorial church. And the territorial church was the church is, is, is made up of anyone that was born in a specific territory. And so if you were born in England, you were part of the Church of England, regardless of whether or not you ever attended or what your heart attitude was. You were considered a part of it because you were born there. And that wasn't unique to England. That was all throughout Europe. You had the state churches in different places or territorial churches. And the Baptists said that the church should be made up of believers. Now, this doesn't sound very radical to us today, but back then, this was a radical statement. The church is only to be made up of people who actually believe in Jesus Christ. And you would say, well, isn't that obvious? Well, it wasn't obvious back then. Back then, the church was made up of anyone born in the territory. And the head of the church was the king of England. So if you were to rebel against the teachings of the the church of England, you were considered a traitor because you were rebelling against the king of England. And this is why Baptists, who then they said, the way that we should, we should be able to show, or the sign that we give, one of many reasons why one is baptized as a believer, is that we, we consciously enter into baptism as, as, as a sign of our belief, of our statement. This is our confession of faith, along with many other things that are attached to it. Death to self, life to Christ, things like that. And so, because this was seen as a movement that rebelled against the King of England, this is why Baptists moved first to Amsterdam. Then they said, let's get as far away as we can. And they went over to the new colonies, which were in the Americas. And if you notice, in the Americas, all along the East Coast, almost all those first states were founded by people seeking freedom of religion. Some of them were Catholic, some of them were Protestant, some of them were Quakers. You got Virginia, it's the Virgin's Land. Maryland, Mary's Land. So those were Catholic places. Up north, you had the Church of England, where you have Boston. It's called the Massachusetts Bay Colonies. And the Baptists went over there, and they got chased out of the north, and they ended up in the south. And that's why the stronghold of Baptists in the world to this day is in the southern part of the United States, for better or for worse. And so this is kind of how, this is where... This sign of baptism becomes a big part of our life, this church's life. If you're going to become a full member here, we ask that you be baptized as a believer. It is your confession of faith, along with several other teachings that go along with it, again, the main one being death to self, life in Christ. So as we've been going through this chapter 12 of Gospels Matthew, he's dealing with these religious people that are acting in a way that is very unpleasing to God, and yet that they seem to be, you know wanting to, to say the right things and do the right things. And just like anything, like even being baptized as a believer, there's some it's an imperfect solution at best when it comes to who makes up the church because you don't know a person's heart. Just because a person goes out, says the right things, goes underwater, pops up, That doesn't like magic takes place there. Their relationship with God is something between them and God. And I've known many a baptized person as a believer that went off the beam and you'd look at their life and you'd go... Where is, where is their faith? Was it real what took place? And so as Jesus is dealing with these questions about his authority, he's said a couple very bold things, if you remember from the, from the previous weeks. Very uncompromising claims. One was, he says that he is greater than the temple, which is to say he is greater than the worship that takes place at the temple. He is greater than the sacrifice that takes place at the temple. He is greater than anything that that temple represents. And who can be greater than a temple that is dedicated to the worship of God Almighty? Only God. He says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, the Sabbath is established by who? God. Who can be the Lord of something established by God? God. About exorcism, he says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, we talked about this last week, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, a very uncompromising statement that Jesus himself embodies the coming of the kingdom of God. And in between this challenge of Jesus' authority regarding his his power over uh, spirits and the call for a sign, he kind of goes off on a detour and he talks about goodness. He talks about how do you know if a person is good? How do you know if a person, their heart is directed toward God? Because this is the question we have. This is why we do things like the Pentecostals say you have to speak in tongues. Baptists use baptism. We're trying to find a way to kind of figure out where a person's really at. Are they with God? And it's a tough decision to make because we don't want to be judgmental, but but we are the church and we need to know who is in the church. And Jesus talks about this question of good. And it's interesting because for many of us, including in the time of Jesus, good seems to be kind of a throwaway word. It's like a lot of things are good. we just kind of, and we just kind of say, if it's generally pleasing to us, it's good. And in fact, in both and all of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a there's a man who, if you combine together all three stories, is known as the rich young ruler. Because each gospel has describes him differently. One is rich. One is young. One's a ruler. He's the rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus, and he and he calls him good. And you probably have run across this passage before. This is out of Mark. It says, As Jesus starts on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is typical of what Jesus often does is he ignores the the question and comes to something he finds more important. And instead of answering this guy directly what he needs to do to inherit eternal life, he first says, why do you call me good? And I'm sure the man didn't even think twice about what he was saying when he called him good teachers, just like calling someone a respectful name. But Jesus says, no, why do you call me good? It's like in German if you call someone Herr, someone's so, a Herr Hinman. It'd be like me, Herr can also be Lord. It's like, well, why are you saying I'm a Lord? And the person who said that to me would be like, I'm just saying, you know, hello in a polite way. Jesus says, no one is good except God alone, because to him the word good is not just a throwaway word to use for flattery. He wants to know, what are you thinking? Why are you saying, I'm good? And again, this comes to this point of, is he, is he a good man or is he a liar? Because he makes, Jesus is making claims that a good man would not make unless they were true. And so he wants to point that out. And it's with this in mind then, let's look at Matthew chapter 12. This is the passage. This is getting into what we're getting into today. Uh, this is verses 33 through 45, and this is uh, 37, and this is a little detour. Jesus after being after casting out the demons says make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree will be recognized by its fruit you brood of vipers now he's talking to the pharisees here how can you who are evil say anything is good for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks The good man brings good things out of the good that is stored up in him. The evil man brings out evil things out of the evil that is stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. So what essentially Jesus is saying here is that The way you tell if a person is good is basically in how they live their life. What comes out of their heart? Do they help the stranger in need? How do they treat their neighbor? And and in particular, Jesus focuses on the words, the words we use with one another. And in this, he's not just talking about not using cuss words and things like that, which probably should not be done. I struggle with that, I have to admit. But really, he's talking about do our words lift people up or do they tear people down? What do we use our words for? And everyone should sit up and take notice when Jesus says, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. There's like two or three verses in the Bible that make me go, uh-oh. <laughs> this is one of them because I'm a words person. I, I use words all the time. I, I, right now, I'm using words to present the things of God. This is a pretty heavy responsibility. And I think sometimes we forget, you know, and we just kind of can be careless about it. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. But he's not just talking about the careless word that is spoken about, you know, day-to-day life. I think there'll be there's judgment that takes place on that, even in this, you know, time on earth here. There's discipline that can take place, eternal. But he's really talking about those words of belief. Do you confess your faith in Jesus Christ? Because the scripture says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and you confess with your lips Christ is Lord, then you'll be saved. That confession, that that power of words is important in the scripture. It shouldn't be lost on us. that God created simply through the power of words. He said, let there be light and there was light. And this is an important part of our faith, which we often kind of overlook the power of words. There's life in words because words can change people's lives. They can change the direction of, of the world around you. And so this is why that confession of faith is important. This is why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This concept is very deep and it's woven all throughout the scripture from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And so the Pharisees, like all these good religious folks, they think Jesus, though, he's not talking about them. They think that, well, he, he must be talking about someone else, but this whole, the, the words, out of the, out, of the, out of the heart, the words flow forth. And so they kind of ignore this whole little detour that Jesus takes, which is actually very salient to the Pharisees, to these good religious folks, out of which comes evil. And so they say, then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law say to him, teacher, we want a miraculous sign from you. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. He's just talked about them, their, their issue of goodness, and they just totally blow it off. They don't even see it. It's like it doesn't even exist for them. And they're like, give us a sign. Now remember, Jesus has been giving signs that the Pharisees have seen for a long time now. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him raise people. They've seen a lot of stuff. But it's not enough. They want a a sign. So he says this, None will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Now, Nineveh was the city that Jonah had preached at. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, who was a conquering nation over the kingdom of Israel. So when Jonah goes to Nineveh, he's going to the people that conquered Israel, and he hates them. And that's the whole story of Jonah. He wants to see God crush Nineveh. And Jonah's actually disappointed that Nineveh repents, if you read the book of Jonah. It's actually a somewhat humorous book. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. So again, Jesus uses this formula where he sets forth a a person of great esteem and then says someone greater. Someone greater than the temple is here. The Lord of the Sabbath is here. The one who casts out demons therefore the kingdom of God is here. And now one greater than the prophets are here. One greater than Jonah. And then he goes on to say, the queen of the south, who's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And one greater than Solomon is here. And who granted Solomon his wisdom? God. Remember? There's that very specific prayer that Solomon prays asking for wisdom. God grants him the wisdom. So who is greater than, than the one that gives the gift of wisdom? God. And so again, Jesus is is making these statements of uncompromising truth about who he is and what he stands for. But the Pharisees, they want this miraculous sign. And again, these are folks that have already seen Jesus do miracle after miracle, and Jesus isn't amused with them. He's not amused. He doesn't kind of smile. I I think there's there's a heavy dollop of sarcasm and he goes ah so now the wicked in generation asks for a miraculous sign hmm. interesting but the sign that they're going to have is going to be the same sign that the rest of the whole world is going to have when it comes to who jesus is and that's the sign of jonah it's interesting that jesus doesn't say okay i'll heal someone else for you to see it just to see it or i'll turn some other water into wine just so you can see it Instead, he says, I'm not going to give you a sign just for you. You're going to see the sign that the whole world is going to see, which vindicates everything that I say I am and everything that I have done. And that is, I'm going to go into the earth for three days and three nights from which I will emerge. And you've got to remember, the people hearing this for the first time, they probably were very confused about what Jesus is talking about. The first thing they're thinking, sign of Jonah they might be thinking, so is he going to jump in the ocean and get swallowed by a fish? And Jesus makes that clear. No, I'm going to be in the earth. And I, don't, I imagine there are some that were very confused about this. They probably thought there was some weird pagan thing, like he's going down into to Hades, or he's, he's doing some kind of you know, ritual under the earth. They, they probably don't have in mind yet that he's going to be crucified and placed in a tomb. Because we see later that his disciples, when Jesus says as much, they're like, no, 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 this isn't going to happen to you. So no one really gets what Jesus is saying here. We do, because we're in this blessed situation of being able to look back. And then again, he uses these compar- uh, comparison statements, like he said about the Sabbath and the temple. You know, he says that the, the men of Nineveh stand up against, they'll ju- they will judge that generation and condemn it. And then Jesus kind of. A little bit out of place again, kind of takes a, a, a turn off the road, and he starts talking about this evil spirit thing. After he talks about the sign that, the, of Jonah and the Queen of Sheba, oh, the Queen of the South came and received wisdom, for someone greater than, than Solomon is here. He then says this: When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through. It go, uh, It goes through and places. Uh, let me get it on here so I can see it. I, I don't have my glasses. <laughs> When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then he says, I'll return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put into order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and they live there. And the final condition of the man is worse than the first. That is how it will be for this wicked generation. So when we read this, we have to understand Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. And at first, this seems kind of like an out-of-place thing. Like he's talking about you know, the sign of Jonah. He's talking about the, the fact that he is greater than the wisdom of Solomon. And then he goes off on this, and we're like, well, what is this supposed to mean? Well, what Jesus is doing, if you if you read the whole chapter 12, he's circling back to the beginning when he started talking about previously who he is as one that goes into the house of the strong man, binds him up and tears from the hands of the strong man that which he found precious. And he's referring to Satan, that he goes into the life of a a person, he binds up Satan and removes from Satan's grip the soul of the human. But if you remember from a week ago, though, he also ties that to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Being, if you have had truth revealed to you and you choose to reject it, then you are in a place of kind of lostness because if you've rejected the ultimate truth, there is no other truth for you to go to and to accept. You've rejected the only way out. It's like the place is burning. There's the one way out in front of us, and you go, No, I'm not going to go out that way. I'm going to reject it. Hopefully, I can find a different way out. And the fact is, the sad fact is, there is no other way out. That's it. And if you reject it, then you have placed yourself in a place of lostness. And so that's the context that Jesus is speaking. Let's go back and read the passage earlier. He goes, again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up that strong man? Then he can rob the house. So in this picture, Jesus is the strong man coming in, tying up the owner, taking from his hands what he holds precious. And then he says, he who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather scatters and then he talks about this blasphemy and so i tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven anyone who speaks again a word against the son of man will be forgiven but everyone who speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come and we talked about that last week people spoke against jesus all the time you at some point in your life may have spoken against christ But when the Holy Spirit comes and reveals to you the truth of who Christ is, that is your important point. Do you repent from your sin? Do you accept who Jesus is? Do you then walk with him? Now you're in the place of salvation. And with that same kind of idea in mind regarding the Pharisees who believe themselves to be very righteous, Jesus says when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through the places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house that I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put into order. Why is it swept clean and put into order? Because the strong man came out and and cast out that untruth, or cast out that, that evil spirit. But you notice it's unoccupied. Why is it unoccupied? Because the person didn't embrace the strong man. He didn't invite the strong man to come in and be the lord of that house, if you will. And so it's unoccupied. And when the spirits come back... Mm, empty house, and this is Jesus saying, listen, Pharisees, you've had the truth, and the truth will set you free, and the truth has, in fact, enlightened you, but if you choose not to embrace it, and you say, I'm just going to set it aside, then that temporary enlightenment of the truth is going to end up being to your detriment, because when the evil spirit comes back in, it is going to be stronger and angrier than before, And you may have run into people throughout your Christian walk who were believers, they claimed to be believers at one point, and then they went completely on the other side of things. How many of you have heard of Billy Graham? Just hands up. Most of you. Very famous American evangelist. How many of you have heard of Charles Templeton? Not very many. Did you know that Charles Templeton was Billy Graham's partner in his early crusades? Charles Templeton was considered a better speaker than Billy Graham. Under Charles Templeton's preaching, thousands of people came to know Christ. Billy Graham and Charles Templeton were like, like you know, joined at the hip. And then something comes along. Charles Templeton completely rejects his faith. And not only that, he then writes a book called A Farewell to God. And Charles Templeton ends up doing a tremendous amount of damage to that generation, this like our parents, grandparents generation, because they had seen him preaching the word of God. And when he rejected, he rejected it over the evolution issue. He told Billy Graham that if you continue to believe in the Bible, you are committing intellectual suicide. And Billy Graham just kind of, Billy Graham wasn't necessarily a uh, a scientific thinker or anything like that. He just kind of said, by faith, I'm going to believe what the Bible has to say. And he had no, he had no kind of Response back with any kind of clever retort. He just said, "I'm going to believe it by faith," and Charles Templeton said, "You're a fool if you do that." And he went off and did his own thing. And no one, none of you, hardly any of you ever knew this guy even existed. His name, in a sense, has been blotted out. It happens. So, what does it mean to us then? What does it mean that we so we don't act up, like end up like these Pharisees? Well. First of all, from this chapter, if you ever have friends or family that say Jesus never makes direct claims towards being divinity, this is a chapter you should take them to and walk through them slowly and don't let them just read over these statements when Jesus says one greater than, and then he fills in there, one greater than the temple is there, the Lord of the Sabbath is there, the authority of God's kingdom is there, one greater than the prophets is here, one greater than the wisdom of the greatest king is here. Don't let them just read right over those because in every one of those statements, Jesus is saying, I am. The other thing about it as non believers is you might wonder, how is Jesus any different from Muhammad or Buddha or any other religious leader? Again, you look at these claims, and this is where when people say, Well, Jesus is a good man, a good teacher, but I just don't believe he's divine, that's just dumb. You can't can't put Jesus in the category of good man, and yet he's lying about these things together. Because if Jesus is not who he says he is, then he's not a good man. If Jesus is not who he said he is, then Jesus is a vile man who has misled humanity for 2,000 years. He cannot be a good man and be a liar at the same time. He cannot be a good man and make these claims which, if they're not true, they've misled us all. And they've misled generations of people for 2,000 years. So he can't be a good man but not really God among us. Or he can't be a good man and and not really divine. That That makes no sense. Either he is or he isn't. And so again, when people say that, when they throw that out, and you've probably heard that, well, I believe Jesus was a good man, but I don't believe he's my savior. Then you can just kind of go, er, it can't be that way. You have to make a choice. And that's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. You have to make a choice. Either you're with me or you're not. Either you gather with me or you scatter. What are you going to do? And the resurrection, coming back to the sign of the resurrection, which again is something that baptism illustrates. That's why we do it through immersion It illustrates being buried with Christ and risen from the dead, which comes out of Romans chapter 6. He says, don't you know that you have been baptized, have been baptized into his death, so that just as Christ was risen from the dead, you too may also live, you too will also have eternal life. And this resurrection event, which Jesus talks about, Jonah, the sign of Jonah, is so essential that the Apostle Paul writes this about it. For what I received, I pass on to you as first importance. So the Apostle Paul says this is the most important thing you need to understand. That, Jesus, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He didn't just pass out. He was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. That's first importance. That's more important than predestination argument or free will argument. It's more important of whatever sign you have. The most important thing to understand is what Jesus did. And that's why we say we're not saved by our baptism. We're saved by our faith in Christ. Baptism is a step of obedience, but we're not saved by it. The waters aren't holy. They aren't magic. They're just representative of a big, huge symbol of importance. After that, he appeared more than more to 500 of the brothers at the same time. So there's a large gathering, and Jesus shows up, 500. Now remember, Judaism has a rule that anything has to be verified by two to three witnesses. So God just overdoes that one by saying, here's 500 witnesses, some of whom are still living. So as Paul's writing this, there there are living people who had seen the resurrected Christ. And if they wanted to refute this, he's writing about people who were alive. Though he says some of them have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is how Paul says people have died. He doesn't use the term died very often because he believes that there's a resurrection. And so he sees death as kind of this, just being asleep for a while. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And actually Paul uses a stronger word for him there than abnormally born. He's very humble about the fact that he comes along in a different way. So then the sign of Jonah is still the sign for us all. It remains the sign. And the point of the sign of Jonah is to glorify Christ, to point us to Christ, to show us what Jesus Christ did upon the cross, that he conquered the grave. He's master over sin and death. And if you believe this, then you express it. If you believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead and you you express it with your mouth, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And coming back to this question that people have this sign, how do we know if a person's a Christian? You know who the context is that that is most often asked? It's not usually people pointing their fingers at other folks. How do you know if they're a Christian? How do you know if they're a Christian? Most of the time, it's about themselves. People will come to me and say, how do I know I'm really a believer? They want to believe. They do believe. But they're unsure. And I would say to them this, and I would say to you, Do you believe that the words of Jesus Christ are true about himself? If you believe those words that Jesus Christ says about himself are true, do you then allow those words to shape and guide and direct your life? And do you believe him? If you believe the words he says are true, do you believe then that his sacrifice upon the cross is enough to forgive your sins? Let's not worry about other people right now. Let's just talk about you. Do you believe that his sacrifice on the cross is enough for your sins? Because Jesus says it is. His resurrection says it is. Do you believe it, though? Because in order for you to embrace the gift that God has given you, which is the opportunity to receive forgiveness for your sins and to have a new life and to walk with the confidence and joy and holiness found in Christ You have to believe in what he has done in order to accept what he has done for you. And so if you can say yes to those things, I do believe what Jesus Christ said is true. I do believe in the literal resurrection. I do believe that he died for my sins and that in the resurrection he proves that he is able to overcome sin and death, including my own sins. And I do trust in him. I put my faith in him. I know I'm not perfect, but I seek that perfection in Christ. I seek to walk with him when I fall I try and get back up If you believe then you are a believer For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life The next step for you if you're a believer is to then look what do I need to do to follow in obedience not salvation, but just an obedience, because obedience draws us closer to God. You know, being born of my dad and my mom, if I'm, a, if I'm estranged from them, I never talk with them, don't have anything to do with them, it doesn't remove the fact that I'm born, it doesn't remove the fact that I'm alive, but I don't have much of a relationship with my mom or my dad if I choose that. So do you choose to be in obedience? Do you choose to walk close with God? Then that will bring you from that place of salvation Through this process, we call sanctification, again, churchy words, becoming righteous, becoming holy, drawing closer to God, taking upon yourself the very character and nature of Christ, which is demonstrated by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, about which there is no law written against them because you can't love too much or care too much or be just too joyful. So where are you at? I think most of you are believers. Just from a pastor, but it's not up to me. It's up to you. And this becomes the place we can baptize this whole room, but if your heart isn't for God, then it's just getting wet in front of people. But if your heart is for God, it's a step of obedience. And this is what Christ wants for us. It's so easy for us to fall into a ritualistic faith. It's so easy for us to fall into something where we're just ticking boxes and trying to find ways that we can comfortably put into our pocket the idea of our salvation when the truth is, it's really all about do we believe in what Jesus said? Do we believe it in such a way that it shows how we live? It changes how we live. That's faith. That's salvation. That's the sign of Jonah. Jonah. That wasn't given just to the Pharisees, but was given to the whole world. That he is Lord, the conqueror over sin and death. May we find our way in him, to know him, to walk close with him, and be the inheritors of all that he has promised. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that in your word we see so much... We do have that concrete sense of who you are. We do have that concrete sense of what it means to follow you. And Lord, yet the the spirit of the age that is upon us or just the spirit of the enemy upon us confuses things so deeply. Lord, we pray right now that you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus so that we can know you without having this influence coming in which is twisting things all the time, making us fearful, making us figure. Well, maybe a ritual will take the place of faith. Or, or maybe some kind of statue will take the place of hope and, and, and grace. And Lord, that we just know those things aren't true. There is one sign, one sign only. And that is in the resurrected Savior. And we thank you that you loved us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Help us to share with people around us who just kind of say, they use their words in a way which is condemning to themselves when they say things like Jesus is a nice guy, but he's certainly not divine. Or Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't anyone to worship. May we gently but clearly bring them to your word and say Jesus did make these claims, which then puts us in a place of how do we respond to them. Lord, may our lives be glorifying to you that people would want to know the truth that we have found in you so that they can also be free. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.